Welcome to the weekly Comic Web Old Time Radio Program podcast. We sell old time radio programs, Golden Age comics in PDF format, and we have other free podcasts. Visit comicweb.com for more information or find us on Facebook and iTunes. This week we have our special 4th of July podcast featuring an episode of Cavalcade of America about the signing of the Declaration of Independence. It first aired January 1st, 1936. We hope our listeners aren't tired of hearing Happy New Year because all of the people connected with this program wish to extend their hearty and sincere greetings with every wish that 1936 will be full of gladness for you. Few companies have been so long identified with the history and growth of America as DuPont. And so it's fitting that DuPont should present the Cavalcade of America, a series of programs which tell you stories of traditional American spirit. It is the belief of the sponsor that a very real expression of the nature and tempo of American life is found in the ideal of DuPont's research chemist. Better things for better living through chemistry. Your comments on this series of programs will be appreciated very much by the sponsor. Just mail them to DuPont, Wilmington, Delaware, or to your radio station. This evening's story concerns the Declaration of Independence. Our Cavalcade Orchestra sets the stage with Victor Herbert's American Fantasy, which makes use of historic American airs. heritage was won only after a long and determined struggle. 
and the document which sets forth our reasons for founding an independent nation did not spring into being spontaneously, as many think. Let us go back to a June evening in 1776. On a street corner in the metropolis of Philadelphia, a crowd has gathered. On the near side of the street, two well-dressed middle-aged gentlemen and a young man stop to see what is happening. Hardly an evening goes by without a gathering such as that one yonder. Go over and see what it is, Philip. Yes, Father. Talking politics as usual, I suppose. How will it all end, Mr. Dickinson? Well, peacefully, I hope, Mr. Temple. I stand with our king. Like him, I have no patience with these fellows who are always shouting independence. Perhaps if the king had a little more patience, these cries of independence would not be heard. When did you join the ranks of the rebels, Mr. Dickinson? I thought you were one of the staunchest supporters of reconciliation. I am, Mr. Temple. But I admit that our colonies have been sorely tried. Sorely tried. Bah! This cry for freedom from the mother country is only from the riffraff. It's not popular in the best circles. Well, I can't agree with you there, sir. There's General Washington, Dr. Franklin. Washington is a fire and Franklin is a supreme egotist. I'm speaking of men like, uh, like, uh, Like yourself, sir? Uh, well, yes. I owe allegiance to my king, and I brought my son up to think as I do. Father? Yes, Philip? It's a man handing out pamphlets. I brought you one. It's called Common Sense. Common Sense. Something that's needed in these colonies. I've seen the booklet. It's a dissertation on uh, independence and the rights of man. Revolutionary twaddle, eh? Well, it should be burned. It's well written. And though I don't agree with the author, it's worth reading. Who wrote it? I don't know. Some say John Adams. Others say Dr. Franklin himself. The whole Continental Congress ought to be strung up, uh, with a few exceptions, uh, such as yourself, Mr. Dickinson. Oh, I'm not the only delegate who wants reconciliation with the Crown. Some of us think that's where our interests lie. Last year there was a plan to introduce a resolution for independence, but I managed to stave it off. But your Congress sent that renegade Washington to Massachusetts to take charge of a force of rebels. Not rebels, Mr. Temple. Englishmen like ourselves who are proud of our rights. I'm an Englishman too, and oh, our discussion seems to have attracted a crowd of your freedom-loving citizens. Oh, hold on, boys! Mr. Temple, Mr. Dickinson, he's a member of the Continental Congress from our own colony. He has always been fair. Great. Well, I'm surprised to see you in such company. A bricklayer should build, not destroy. Oh, wait a moment, gentlemen. Don't let's have any arguments. The watch will be along shortly, and... And then I we... suppose we'll be arrested and shipped to England for trial. Uh, he wants reconciliation with the king. I've seen the petition to your right. We're loyal subjects of the king, dutiful children. Ah. Yes, sir. Uh, what about the idea of this pamphlet on common sense, Mr. Dickens? My answer will be made at the proper time. I'm not against you. Truly, I'm not. I'm as fond of my country as you are. I sympathize with her ills. I only deal with you regarding the remedy. Uh, the remedy. I can't help feeling that if the colonists could convince the people of Great Britain that we're in earnest about our rights and willing to defend them, the British government will back down as they did in the case of the Stamp Act. Well, why argue with them, Mr. Dickinson? Traitors should be sent to prison. Traitors. Mark my words. This country will never be free of British rule. Never. Listen to Tom Paine. Thank you, Grant. This bickering won't get you anywhere. If you're looking for a fight, I'm sure that General Washington will welcome you as recruit. Go on about your business. I want to talk to this gentleman myself. Yes, hold on, all of you. Oh, 
I thank you, sir. I'm in your debt. Did I catch the name of Payne? Yes, sir. This is uh, Thomas Payne, Mr. Temple. An Englishman by birth and an American by adoption. You handle those curs superbly, Mr. Payne. Don't call them curs, sir, unless they turn on you and bite. I felt I must send them away because I am more or less responsible for their overzealous demonstration. How so, sir? It was this, uh, this treasonable booklet called Common Sense that made them yelp at their betters. This booklet, sir, was written to excite the minds of the people. It was conceived as a protest against tyranny and oppression. You are familiar, then, with this seditious pamphlet? I wrote it, sir. What? And my intervention on your behalf was to ask you to read it. You and your son. I'll do no such thing. Nor Philip. Yes, Father, I'll read it. Perhaps it will explain to you why there are men like these who have just left us. What do you mean, sir? We have men like these, sir, because of men like you. Good night, gentlemen. There were three schools of thought in the colonies. The Tories, or Loyalists, the Moderates, who sought reconciliation, and the patriots who desired separation. But all the patriots were not as aggressive in their demands as the group that threatened Mr. Temple. We find representatives of two of these schools talking together as the Continental Congress assembles on the seventh day of June, 1776. John Dickinson, whom we have met, is speaking with John Adams, one of the delegates from Massachusetts. Good morning. Hey, good morning, Mr. Dickinson. I uh, think we have a surprise for you today. Indeed. Last year it was your turn. Congress adopted your petition to the king, and I submitted. This year I trust you will give way with as good grace. Well, what do you intend? Uh, You'll learn soon after Mr. Hancock calls us to order. Take your seats, please, gentlemen. Good morning, Dr. Franklin. Uh, good morning, Mr. Dickinson. Uh, may I sit with you and the other members of the Pennsylvania delegation? With pleasure, sir. Uh, what is Adams hinting about? Uh, what are you planning? What am I planning? You know. You're deeply interested in every move Congress makes. I'm interested in everything that goes on in the world, Mr. Dickinson. Oh, oh yes. <laughs> Congress, you please come to order. There is no objection. We will dispense with the roll call. The readings of the minutes. Proceed to new business. Do I hear any objection? Any objection, Mr. Dickinson? No. Dr. Franklin, I'm waiting to see what new move you and your friends are planning. The floor is open for new business. Mr. Chairman, the chair recognizes Mr. Richard Henry Lee of Virginia. Mr. Chairman, as instructed by my colony, I move this resolution. Resolve that these United Colonies are... And the right ought to be free and independent states. That they are absolved from all allegiance to the British crown, and that all political connection between them and the state of Great Britain is, and ought to be, totally dissolved. <laughs> gentlemen, gentlemen, please. Do I hear a second? I second the resolution. The resolution is seconded by Mr. John Adams of Massachusetts. Discussion? Question? Uh, Mr. Question. Chairman. Discussion. Mr. Dickinson, this is far too important a matter to pass without proper discussion and serious consideration. I move you, sir, that Congress resolve itself into a committee, a committee of the whole to consider this resolution. I second the motion. Wow. Mr. Dickinson's motion is seconded by Dr. Franklin. Right. You, Dr. Franklin, 
I thought we disagreed. We do, John. But the more obstacles you put in our way, the surer we are of reaching our goal. It's one of the best traits our English heritage has given us. Question! Question! I'll put the question. All in favor of Mr. Dickinson's resolution? Both sides were eager to postpone the actual vote on the resolution. But many members felt that it had a good chance of passing, and so a committee was named to draft a declaration stating the reasons for such a resolution. The committee consisted of Benjamin Franklin, John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, Roger Sherman, and Robert Livingston. Jefferson, considered by many to be the best writer in the colonies, was chosen to make the original draft. Let us visit the Grafts House on Market Street, Philadelphia, late in June. Grafts is talking with his wife. But Mr. Jefferson hasn't come down to his supper. I think I should call him. No, don't disturb him. Mr. Adams and Dr. Franklin are with him. There are serious matters being discussed upstairs. Well, maybe Dr. Franklin and Mr. Adams would like some supper, too. <laughs> Must you always be thinking of food? Important plans are being made for the welfare of our country. Tom Jefferson says that some delegates have been instructed to introduce another resolution for independence this session. Oh, you're always talking politics and worrying about the country instead of attending to your business. Uh, more members of the Continental Congress to tight up my floors, I suppose. You don't appreciate the honor that you are boarding here in our home. Someday this house will be known as a place where history well, you was made. You call it an honor if you had to sweep up after them. Oh, good evening, Mr. Phillips. Good evening, Mrs. Grant. It's young Mr. Temple, Father. How are you, Mr. Grant? Oh, come in, Mr. Phillips. Well... Uh, how can I serve you? I was wondering if you could tell me where I could find more books or pamphlets like this Common Sense. Has Mr. Payne written any more? I don't know, Mr. Phillips, but I'll ask Mr. Jefferson. He will know. I'd be very grateful if you would. Mr. Jefferson's busy now. He mustn't be disturbed. Uh, how does your father feel about your sudden interest in this kind of literature? Hmm. Father doesn't know. But I'm convinced his ideas are wrong, Mr. Grafton. Yeah. Our country must come first. Before England or any other place. Don't you think so? Yes, Mr. Phillips, I do think so. My parents came from Germany and settled here. They are like your father. They are always talking about the old country, but I am an American. So am I. And our duty lies, I think, with the new country rather than the old. A place where we intend to live and bring up families. We owe it to future generations so that they may, they may have a uh, happy and a better place to live in. Jefferson's room, he and his colleagues, John Adams and Benjamin Franklin, are formulating the documents that was to help make the country a happy and a better place. Well, Dr. Franklin, now that you've read the draft, what do you think? As a whole, Mr. Jefferson, I am delighted with it. But I hope you won't be offended if a much older man makes a few slight suggestions. Certainly not, Dr. Franklin. For instance, you say... When, in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for a people. Now, wouldn't one people be more significant? Yes. 
Yes, one people, that's right. And you say uh, we hold these truths to be sacred and undeniable. Now, I would prefer we hold these truths to be self-evident. Self-evident is stronger. Above all, we must be careful not to alienate any of our colonies at this time. Unless this declaration of our reasons for freedom is passed unanimously by the Continental Congress, it will utterly fail in its purpose. You're right about that, Dr. Franklin. It must be the unanimous will of the United Colonies. Now, I've called the colonies the United States of America. Do you like that term, Dr. Franklin? Yes, Mr. Jefferson, I do. The United States of America. May they ever stand so. Discussion after discussion caused further postponement of any definite action. On July 1st, 1776, the Committee of the Whole met and advised the passage of the Lee Resolution. The vote was nine colonies for and four against. We find Franklin, Jefferson, and Adams the night of July 1st discussing the situation. Nine votes out of 13. No, it's not enough. If the resolution isn't passed unanimously tomorrow, the rest of the world will never believe our colonies are united. Never believe we are the United States of America. Four colonies against. Delaware, South Carolina, Pennsylvania, and New York. The Delaware delegation is evenly divided. The New York delegation has no instructions, and none could possibly arrive by tomorrow. The South Carolina delegates feel that their instructions aren't broad enough to allow them to vote affirmatively. Rutledge has called them together tonight. Uh, perhaps his eloquence may persuade them. I'm worried about Delaware. The vote will always remain one to one. McKean for and read against. Well, we can't count on Delaware. McKean told me that he'd sent a post writer for Caesar Rodney. As the third member of the delegation, he's sure to favor the resolution. Rodney's 80 miles away, and they say he's a sick man. We can't expect him to arrive in time to vote. It's your own Pennsylvania delegation that worries me most, Dr. Franklin. That's a negative majority that no amount of eloquence or persuasion can change. I know, I know. Dickinson and Morris are sincere. So are Willing and Humphreys. Four to three against. Hmm. Come in. Good evening, gentlemen. Oh, good evening, good evening. Good evening Mr. Dickinson. I trust I'm not interrupting. Why, not at all. Come in, Dickinson. We were just discussing you. Not too harshly, I trust. Gentlemen, I was much impressed with the vote today. Uh, so much so that you wish to change yours, I hope. No, Doctor. I still believe in reconciliation. But I love my country too well to hold out against wishes of majority. I know that independence must pass. And I realize the necessity for an undivided front. My conscience won't permit my voting for the resolution. But I can stay away from the Congress. That would make a tie in the Pennsylvania delegation, Mr. Dickinson. I'm on my way to talk to Morris. If he also remained away tomorrow, you would have a majority in the Pennsylvania delegation. Uh, Mr. Dickinson, you and I have long been opponents. 
Now I want to express my appreciation and gratitude, sir. Of course. I can't promise for more. Tomorrow we'll tell the tale. We must wait for tomorrow. morning of July 2nd, the delegates of the Continental Congress assembled to vote on the Lee Resolution. Franklin and Adams are seated together not far from the chairman, John Hancock, as the voting proceeds. There's eight. New Hampshire, Massachusetts, Connecticut, Rhode Island, New Jersey, Maryland, Virginia, North Carolina. Four more to come. With New York not voting. The chair calls on Mr. Gwinnett of the Georgia delegation. Georgia votes in favor of the revolution. The South Carolina delegation, Mr. Rutledge. Mr. Chairman, last night we held a meeting of the South Carolina delegates. Lasted well into the morning. We have come to the conclusion that our instructions are broad enough to allow us to vote on the question. South Carolina votes in the affirmative. Rutledge must have been very eloquent. Well, I'm beginning to breathe easier. There are still two more, and... At uh... the request of Colonel McKean of Delaware, I have postponed calling on that colony until an attempt has been made to secure a full representation. Yesterday, the vote was Mr. even. Mr. Chairman! Mr. Chairman! Here's Colonel McKean now. I was just calling on you. Mr. Chairman, I beg to report... Our third delegate, Mr. Cesar Rodney, has just arrived. He has ridden all night and wishes to apologize for rushing in so unceremoniously. But thanks to his arrival, the Delaware delegation supports the resolution two to one. Only your own colony left, Dr. Franklin? Yes, only Pennsylvania. Dr. Franklin, have the other members of your delegation arrived as yet? No, Mr. Chairman, and I am certain now that Mr. Dickinson and Mr. Morris are not coming. I therefore announce that the Pennsylvania delegation stands three to two in favor of independence. Well, wise, with the New York delegation in sympathy, but not voting, I think we may call it unanimous. It is unanimous. Mark my words, Dr. Franklin. July 2nd will be a day of rejoicing and celebration in these United States until the end of time. July 2nd, the day the resolution was passed, is not the day we celebrate. On July 4th, after much discussion as to its wording, a formal declaration of independence, little changed from Jefferson's original draft, was adopted unanimously by the assembled representatives of the United Colonies. On July 8th, the people of Philadelphia are gathered outside the State House to hear the declaration read by John Nixon. On the outskirts of the crowd stands young Philip Temple with his father. I can't see why you dragged me here, Philip. You've read that document yourself at Mr. Jefferson. You almost know it by heart. We can't hear anything here anyway. I want to see how the people take it, Father. The people, eh? I notice not many of our friends are here. Many of our friends have fled the town, Father. Yeah, that is true, sir. I'm glad you're staying. I'm waiting to see the outcome of all this. Anyone can put words on paper, but will they live up to their words? Will they sign this declaration? Indeed they will, Mr. Temple. I'm sure of that. We'll see, Grat. This is a great occasion, isn't it, Mr. Grat? Uh, a day to remember, lads. 
I'm glad to see you taking an interest, Mr. Temple. Huh? I feared perhaps you'd left town with your friends. Father's staying in Philadelphia, but I'm leaving town, Mr. Gratt. You, Philip? Tomorrow I start for Boston to join General Washington. Oh, good lad. Does your father approve? Mm, the boy's of age. If I tried to stop him, your liberty boys would try to run me out of town, I suppose. <laughs> Don't mind what father says. I really think he's rather proud of me. Mr. Nixon has finished reading the declaration. Those men in Congress have pledged their lives, their fortunes, and their honor. Could I do less? Every church bell in Philadelphia seems to be ringing. Yeah, ringing in a new era. They've given us the ideal. It's our duty to make it real. On August 2nd, the delegates assembled. Fifty-six signatures were affixed to the document, each man pledging his life, his fortune, and his sacred honor to uphold the principles of freedom and equality so that we and future generations should have life, liberty, and the chance for happiness. There are no braver names than these in the cavalcade of America. The American spirit of independence is well exercised by the American housewife as she does her daily shopping. A good example of Mrs. Housewife's firm intention to get the things she buys in first-class condition, fresh, clean, and sanitary, and to see exactly what she's buying, is shown by the revolutionary improvements in packaging during recent years, particularly transparent wrapping. The story of transparent wrapping, or cellulose film, which is another name for it, is a mighty interesting story of chemistry. First manufactured in 1898 in England to wrap the famous pear soap and improved in 1908 by a French chemist, this material is now made in the United States. DuPont makes and sells it under the trademark cellophane. Maybe you have seen, or you will see, the recent spectacular moving picture A Midsummer Night's Dream, in which 700,000 yards of cellophane were used to create the beautiful illusion of fairyland. Or you may have seen pianos and automobiles wrapped in cellophane. But these are the novel and unusual uses. The importance of cellophane to you is the way it protects your health by guarding things from dirt and germs and also the way it keeps foods fresh and delicious. How can man produce a substance as shimmery as a moonbeam and as elusive as thin air out of the towering spruce trees? Because that's exactly where cellophane cellulose film comes from. Chips of spruce wood go through various chemical processes to end up as a thick liquid. Then an amazing transformation takes place in one step. As the liquid cellulose is forced through a long, narrow slot, it flows evenly into an acid bath. And the instant it touches the acid, it coagulates and becomes solid. Then it's purified and bleached until it's as clear as crystal and made flexible for easy and secure wrapping. DuPont chemists made many improvements in the original discovery. They found how to make this transparent wrapping moisture-proof to protect the freshness of foods and tobacco. In short, the thing to remember is that cellophane cellulose film is something chemistry has created to protect you by protecting the things you buy. It well illustrates the creed of DuPont research chemists 
better things for better living through chemistry. This program has come to you through the courtesy of DuPont, one of America's oldest enterprises, makers of chemical products since 1802. It's one of a series of programs in the Cavalcade of America, presented by DuPont each Wednesday evening at 8 o'clock Eastern Standard Time over the Columbia Broadcasting System. When presented on the air, each program also contains a short, interesting story of chemical achievement, illustrating the DuPont chemist's creed, Better Things for Better Living Through Chemistry. Cavalcade of America was one of the longest-running, high-quality drama shows on radio. It first aired in 1935, was broadcast on radio until 1953, then the show switched to television and lasted until 1957. The show dramatized significant people or events in American history and literature. It also featured a full orchestra punctuating the action, occasionally playing extended pieces of music, and some shows were dedicated to American music in which the orchestra really got a chance to shine. Cavalcade was a high-quality show using star power like Raymond Massey, Charles Lawton, Lionel Barrymore, Dick Powell, and Clark Gable made his first radio appearance on Cavalcade, and Orson Welles gained valuable experience on the show before creating the Mercury Theater. In addition to the hottest stars of the day and talented up-and-comers, the show had a good group of staff writers, also worked with popular authors of the day. Carl Sandburg, Stephen Vincent Benet, Robert Sherwood all worked for Cavalcade. Sandburg was the narrator for the show, adapting his book Native Land. The show paid top rate, and the best radio directors demanded perfection from the actors. In addition to top stars, directors, and production crew, the show also hired historical advisors, led by Dr. Frank Monahan of Yale, to verify the stories as historically accurate. Having hyped the accuracy of the show, the audience raised themselves to the task of finding errors. Lucky for the producers, the internet hadn't been invented yet. But over the all, the show did actually a good job of presenting an accurate picture of history. At first, the show featured people and events from America's distant past, but around 1939, the show changed a bit and allowed for more recent events and people, or modern stories that reflected American ideals, such as Babe Ruth and stories of wartime valor. The origin of the show is a little less than the ideals it tried to promote. Cavalcade of America was sponsored by the DuPont Company. DuPont was having what in the biz is called a public relations situation. The company was being investigated for war profiteering after World War I. In response, the company created a quality show highlighting positive American ideals. To help their reputation, the show did not enact any violence on the show, and it only had a commercial intro at the beginning of the show and a longer commercial at the end. The slogan, Better Living Through Chemistry, first appeared on this show. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next week.